Hello, I'm your host Kevin Moore, and you're now listening to The Moore Show. For the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'm joined with Tony Gosling to discuss his research into the strange death of Princess Diana. So stay tuned, enjoy, and I'll be right back. Mr. Show or a guest? Want to know more about The Moore Show and upcoming guests? Then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. Man, mama, I 
You're listening to The Moore Show. And here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. I'm about to be joined by our guest, Tony Gosling. Just a bit of background on Tony. He was born in Kent 1962 and was brought up in South London. After gaining a humanities degree specialising in English literature, he worked for a few years for the family aviation business. He then decided to have a go at radio journalism and joined the BBC. After moving on from the BBC, he settled in Bristol becoming an independent researcher, specialising in the Illuminati and Princess Diana. Tony, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi Kevin. So, Tony, we're going to focus here on the uh, death of Princess Diana and discuss the evidence, but just briefly, just tell me a bit about yourself. Well, I'm a journalist, freelance journalist, um, who was working in aviation before I started being a journalist. Then I worked in broadcasting in London at Greater London Radio as a researcher, that is to say, setting up a lot of the interviews for people like Tommy Vance and Johnny Walker, who were doing um, uh, news programmes and... I was working there at quite an interesting time, which was, uh, this is in Marylebone High Street, um, uh, during the IRA bombing campaign in the okay. early 1990s. So I'm also an environmental activist, I suppose you'd say, a land rights campaigner and a bit of a historian. But uh, now I do, um, I suppose, uh, freelance journalism and radio production here in Bristol. I have a weekly current affairs programme. Okay, well, let's talk about the background of Diana. Just tell me a bit about her family. Well, her, the Spencer family, a uh, uh, very sort of ancient aristocratic English family, one of these families that have got a nice country pile. In fact, sometimes they have several country piles. But they're from the old ruling class, that is to say the landed gentry and aristocracy. Um, uh, you know, many people don't necessarily see the differences between various different types of the super rich in Britain. Um, but they're from a, an old sort of feudal family, um, the feudal um, leaders were much more powerful before the English Civil War, which was when the kind of moneyed merchant classes took over. So the Spencer family, Diana's family, are like that. Um, yeah. Now you've covered events with uh, Charles and Diana, I believe, at Salisbury Cathedral. What was the mood back then when they were together? Well, there was a big concert in the early 90s uh, when I was working for Wiltshire Sound called the Symphony for the Spire in Salisbury and there were tens of thousands of people came along to see this it was uh, uh, Pavarotti, Placido Domingo and this kind of thing and, and, the, and the, but the real guests of honour were Charles and Diana and it was at the time where there were had been for several months there'd been leaks so-called leaks in the newspapers saying that uh, it, the marriage had turned acrimonious and uh, none of us in the newsroom really were sure about this so you know this is the Swindon newsroom um, and so we were having a chat at the uh, coffee break uh, the, the day before this event, saying it would be really interesting, you know, all of us journalists saying, would be really interesting to see what the body language between Charles and Diana is like, because there you've got it. immediately, you will have uh, some kind of uh, independent way of assessing whether this speculation uh, in the press, because it was being very, very fiercely contradicted by Prince Charles's office, yeah. um, was true or not. Um, and now when... Uh, the couple arrived by helicopter at the Symphony for the Spire concert. Um, the crowd were very disappointed because uh, only Charles appeared. So, and also we were disappointed as journalists because we wanted to see the pair of them together to see, you know, how are they getting on. Uh, anyway, uh, after about ten minutes of Charles coming down the steps of the helicopter, talking to people, suddenly into the doorway of the helicopter stepped Diana. And the entire crowd, I'm talking about, you know, literally thousands of people started cheering and shouting and waving, Diana, Diana. 
And uh, you could see that she was, uh, you know, she wanted to put as much distance as possible, physical space between her uh, and Prince Charles. And it was at that point that uh, certainly I realised, and many of the other journalists, because we we have talk back. So I was talking back to the producer, for example, and to other journalists that were covering the event around around the uh, stage area. And uh, it, it, it was it was hot gossip that gosh look this really is this looks like this looks like this marriage is broken down looks like there's something really seriously wrong here. Um, but the, well, the other thing I saw at that time was uh, Prince Charles who looked up looked towards Diana, as all the crowds around him were ignoring him and just waving at her. Yeah. There was a clearly uh, a, a real acrimony there that, uh, that that she was the one that everybody seemed to love and want to see. And uh, the people even who were staying right next to Prince Charles were virtually ignoring him. Now, in her famous 1990 interview with Martin Bashir, I mean, she was quoted as saying she won't go quietly, she'll fight to the end. Do you think she scared the monarchy? She was a very tough, independent-minded person. I mean, let's remember, she was brought up in the aristocracy, in the traditional aristocracy, are, are uh, educated, really, to be very independent-minded and to take pride in the fact that their views are their own views, they're not borrowed from somebody else. Uh, and so, uh, the other thing, of course, that goes with that, with her sort of freedom of expression, was the fact that she was very courageous and uh, and she, I suppose, in the, a royal family, which was seen as a little bit old and stuffy, would have been... Uh, constantly uh, seen seen by them as speaking out of turn uh, lots of issues for example um, you know sort of embarrassing issues which wouldn't wouldn't be uh, considered to be uh, acceptable to be raised around the dinner table i can imagine diana raising them uh, and causing should we say yeah. causing a bit of acrimony there too because she was speaking her mind in a, in a place where that wasn't the done thing well, that goes back to the question then of the secret tapes, I suppose. Um, what was that about? Well, that was... Uh, uh, Diana, uh, Diana felt that she hadn't been justly treated by the press, particularly that uh, the royal family and Prince Charles's spin machine was much more efficient at getting the message out uh, from his point of view than she was. And uh, she decided that uh, she would team up with Andrew Morton uh, writer Andrew Morton, but she realised that as soon as the palace got wind of this, that they would try and stop it. They would use legal injunctions and all this kind of thing. So she had to uh, get the questions from Andrew Morton and recorded her uh, answers back to him secretly um, by a voice coach who was cycling in once a week. Uh, he would cycle in with the questions and he would cycle back out uh, with the tape-recorded answers. And it was from that, over a period of several months, that Andrew Morton put together the book Princess Diana, Her True Story. Uh, when it first came out, there was such anger by the palace about the book that uh, it, she had to, or she felt she had to, deny that she'd had anything to do with it. Uh, but then, of course, it transpired later that, yes, she, you know, these were her words, and uh, she had sanctioned the writing of this book. OK, so she had the book published, but wasn't she also quite close with the uh, Daily Express paper as well? So wasn't she putting her side of the story through the Daily Express paper? Well, she had a very close relationship with the Daily Express. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see even today, if there's a little blip in the news to do with Diana, all the other broadsheet papers and the tabloids seem to ignore it, except the Daily Express. And the reason for that, and I've spoken to uh, a chap here in Bristol who was for several weeks the editor of the Sunday Express as a relief for uh, the editor who was away on holiday, and he was saying that uh, Diana was felt that the Express 
trusted her and that she trusted them. She also was talking to them about some legal papers that she had that proved that the current royal family were imposters and that they'd illegally gained title to the British throne. Now, uh, coming from uh, sort of almost anybody, including a sort of barrister or solicitor, this would be laughed at. But coming from her, uh, it was taken seriously by the Express and they were looking into it uh, when she died. But of course that never got published. No, and it's a great pity, I think, that, that these sort of investigative papers like Private Eye really show their true colours when uh, there's so much evidence to do with the uh, death of Diana being suspicious and that the uh, inquest being a bit of a cover-up, that, that, that they have obviously decided that uh, Al-Fayed, um, at the Private Eye, they've decided that Al-Fayed is the boogeyman and that uh, they don't actually look at this in a balanced way. Uh, but the, the Daily Express, thank God, still do. Now, you had a family friend who used to work for uh, MI6. What did they tell you about the death of Princess Diana? Well, yes, I do. I have a, I have a family friend uh, who spent her career working for the Foreign Office uh, as a spy, and she was employed by uh, MI6, the Foreign Intelligence Service, Secret Intelligence Service, and she spent many years, in the, particularly through the 1970s, um, basically sleeping with uh, leaders in the Middle East and uh, getting information from them and finding out as much as she can f- could for uh, British military intelligence about what their plans were, what their ideas were, even things like their religion and that sort of thing, their beliefs. Uh, and uh, she was retired at the point when Diana died back in the late 90s. But uh, she, I met up with her um, just literally about three weeks after Diana's death. And before she even spoke to me, she looked at me and she said, before we sit down, I've got something to say about Diana. And she looked me in the eye and said, our lot did it. She seemed absolutely adamant that MI6 had actually committed this uh, atrocity, had had assassinated Diana. And she said the reasons, there were several reasons, one of which was that uh, they were planning, Diana apparently and Dodie were planning to go to Egypt and possibly uh, even stand as a, Dodie to stand as a presidential candidate in Egypt. But there were lots and lots of things going on. For for example, they were uh, about to announce their engagement in London when they returned. uh, And he had evidence, uh, she had evidence of this. Um, But the the main contact for her was this guy, Richard Tomlinson. He was an MI6 agent who, MI6, uh, was, he was a little bit of an independent-minded guy, sort of a James Bond, I suppose, but uh, because he was too independent-minded, MI6, it seemed, had tried to assassinate him, you know, their own employee. They'd sent him into a situation in Kosovo where he was, his cover was blown before he even walked into the room, and as a spy, it was quite likely that he was just going to simply be shot as a spy. Uh, so he he turned kind of against MI6 as they, after they tried to kill him, and he swore an affidavit basically saying that, and this is one of the most interesting items to do with the whole Diana case, where he's saying that the, uh, the plans to kill uh, Diana, he'd seen a very, very similar type of assassination plan whilst he was working at MI6. In fact, it had been put together and was being mooted as a possible way of killing Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian leader. But, and then he went to trial and then many people think got poisoned before he finally was, uh, there was a judgment against him. So this affidavit, I think, is a very important bit of information which points to the idea that this was simply an off-the-shelf plan at MI6, which was going to be used on Milosevic, but somebody somewhere decided, let's use it against Diana. 
Yeah, because I mean, there was talk of an explosion in the tunnel uh, at the time the car crash happened, and there was uh, theories about maybe a bomb was concealed in the actual bonnet of the car, or maybe the electronic management system had been tampered with. Yes, that's right. Uh, this is one of the... I mean, we're getting into the sort of nitty-gritty of the evidence to do with this case. Uh, and, you know, in normal course of events, we would have a coroner's inquest, and that would uh, rule on all this and, it, and have all the evidence. But, of course, it took 10 years for the inquest to uh, take place, and that was only after several coroners had taken on the, uh, the inquest and then decided, look, they couldn't carry through with it. Obviously, too much pressure was being put on them by the royal family and other parts of the establishment to come out with, quote-unquote, the right verdict. Um, and during all this time, uh, there, was, there were several, uh, several very good books being written, probably the best of which is uh, called Princess Diana, the, Hid the Hidden Evidence, How MI6 and the CIA Were Involved in the Death of Princess Diana. That's by John King, J-O-N King, and John Beveridge. Uh, and this was written just in the, a couple of years afterwards. So uh, they spoke to, they're two investigative journalists that spoke to many people who were closely involved in the case. Uh, but anyway, the inquest uh, came up with a verdict, uh, as you said, of um, uh, basically, I think it was all unlawful killing. Am I right? That's right, yes. Uh, the the uh, main conclusions that were given by the coroner were two things. One was, uh, firstly, that, that Henry Paul, the driver, was drunk. Uh, now, it did look, or, or certainly intoxicated, it did look like the, uh, certainly the CCTV pictures of him clearly show that he wasn't drunk as he was walking out. He was also supposed to have been a teetotaler. Uh, and also, uh, his blood sample uh, contained massive amounts of carbon monoxide, and there are people that believe that this is actually from a different body. It, in fact, it contained so much carbon monoxide that he wouldn't have even been able to stand up. So this looks like the blood sample's been tampered with almost immediately. The, the other conclusion was that the f chasing photographers, the paparazzi, also contributed to it. Now, there was a very good uh, um, uh, documentary a couple of years ago on Channel 4, which Prince Charles did his utmost to injunct and stop being transmitted, uh, which was also to do with the crash and showed that the, basically the photographers, photographers were fitted up as the uh, culprits and that there were uh, all sorts of measures were taken to make sure that right from the word go uh, that the photographers um, freelance photographers and various other paparazzi were set up immediately as it's these people's fault they were chasing her even though it's something like two minutes one and a half minutes after the crash the first photographer arrived so um, you know th there's all sorts of questions about this inquest and uh, I think it's unfinished business wasn't it true that Henry Paul was on the pay of a supposedly national security service at the time he died? He had large amounts of money uh, being transferred into his account. It did look like, uh, yes, he was uh, being paid by the Secret Service of some country, possibly MI6, possibly another country. But then, of course, in a, in a uh, big operation like this, there would have had to be been cooperation between the Secret Service in France and in Britain. There had, had to be some sort of agreement that this assassination was going to take place and covertly or, you know, even to the highest levels of the Secret Service, possibly in France and Britain, um, people would know about it. Well, didn't they tell Paul to uh, take a different route that day? Why did he take the route that he took it's in the end? Really, it's, it's really, really difficult to know. It may be that someone had a word with him earlier that day and advised him, but it, or it could be coincidence. I mean, I think in an assassination attempt like this, a successful assassination, um, then... You know, there are all sorts of things that may go wrong and may not go, or may, may happen and may not happen, may go wrong, may not go wrong. So uh, whoever the assassins are, 
if uh, for whatever reason Henry, Henry Paul was to have chosen a different route or changed his mind or someone was to have told him no take a different route then uh, they would just simply slip back into the shadows and uh, be planning it again for maybe a future date Right, okay. Well, tell me about the um, the Uno car and um, Mr. Anderson and what his yeah, involvement. James, James, James Anderson is one of the most fascinating characters associated with the Diana assassination, and he's a he's a um, he was a photographer uh, who also seemed to be someone who was quite close to some of the secret services. Anyway, he he uh, believed that, uh, well, it was believed that he had actually been the driver of the white Fiat Uno and that he'd been very close to the scene and seen a lot more than many of the other photographers uh, who turned up later had seen. Also, quite feasibly, that he had photographs in his possession uh, that may have shown, uh, in fact, there are other photographers that say the same, that Diana was actually conscious, speaking, reasonably alive and and relatively uninjured when she went into the ambulance. Of course, when she came out of the ambulance, uh, she was virtually dead on the last legs. Uh, and so this, again, is very suspicious. I mean, who was, uh, why did the ambulance take such a long time to go to the hospital? Certainly my MI6 contact believed that uh, Diana was killed in the ambulance and that she even had the fetus of a baby taken from her in the ambulance. Um, but uh, so the Diana, the Channel 4 documentary goes into some of the stuff to do with the photographers. But James Anderson, Anderson, I must pronounce it right. Uh, he was uh, he was found uh, apparently committed suicide, even though uh, he had a receipt for diesel. But actually, he was set alight with petrol. Uh, bizarrely, it looked like that the, the the receipt for the fuel that he'd used to so-called kill himself had been forged, or was a fake receipt. Uh, and also uh, the car that he was found in and his body was found on a, basically like a French military exercise area. So it was actually military land he was found on. It does look as if, uh, you know, he was, he, was, he was killed and it was uh, a rather a crude attempt to make it look like an assassination. So he knew something, um, he knew various things to do with the uh, Diana's death that uh, somebody somewhere in the French military didn't want anyone to know. Well, some might say that, uh, you know, it, it was just a minor a scrape on, on the car, not a major impact to cause such a crash. Um, what do you what do you think of that? It's really difficult to know what happened. I mean, we certainly know that the engine management system, certain things to do with the car, were uh, tampered with or changed in the days just running up to uh, this uh, dreadful, uh, her dreadful death and the dreadful crash. Um, but I mean, my own personal view is that it may well have been uh, some kind of device on the car. I mean, you'll see some of the evidence in this in the books that I mentioned, book that I mentioned, um, uh, that that there was some sort of device on the car that would force the wheels on the car to turn very sharply uh, to the left. And of course, as the French drive on the right, that would send them straight into the um, pillars, even at very high speed. So the idea is a sort of very simple device that would actually. Uh, take over control of the car momentarily but crucially from the driver. Yeah, I mean, talk about the in, inside the car at the time of the crash, I mean, it was very strange that uh, Trevor Reese jones was the only survivor sitting in the front not wearing a seatbelt, because, I mean, normally, being the bodyguard, um, don't they have to react quickly uh, in case um, of, of a situation so they wouldn't normally wear a seatbelt? So did he know more than he was letting on? Well, you can't say that, because, uh, I mean, in a car crash, anything can happen. I mean, the car rolled... Uh, went sideways, and it all depends on where the specific impact, packs, impact points are on the car. Um, so, 
the fact, I mean, sometimes in car accidents, uh, someone in the back may be killed, even though it's been, a, say, for example, a head-on collision, and yet uh, someone in the front survives. So uh, you can't really draw any conclusions from, from that, I'm afraid, because there's no one can tell before the crash itself, uh, any car crash, who's going to live and who's going to die. I mean, what about the uh, 17 traffic cameras being switched off at that, that period when the car crash happened? Well, this is just one of literally hundreds of suspicious uh, circumstances around this. Uh, we, we saw a similar thing in the London bombings uh, in uh, July 2005, that the CCTV evidence of uh, the four alleged bombers actually on the underground network getting onto the trains, actually on the trains themselves, just didn't exist. And the same with the bus on the, the London bombings. We were told that the camera wasn't working. I think this is one of the first suspicious things that anyone will look at when it comes to uh, terrorist attacks and assassinations is let's have a look at, at the CCTV footage. If anyone tells you, oh, it's all disappeared, I'm sorry, we can't see it, then, then that's one of the first... Uh, uh, first indications that uh, something untoward has been going on, and maybe that there is an assassination or it's a you know com- a false flag attack. Somebody else is actually planting the problem than what we're being told. Right. Yeah. I mean, because also the police uh, frequencies, I was told, had been switched off between that time. Right. Yes. I mean, that would make sense. I, 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 yes. I don't know about that one, but uh, I mean, a lot of this evidence is in the book. Uh, yeah. You know that I mentioned. Okay. And uh, and we could go. We could go. Uh, uh, I don't think it's really much point in going into too much detail because some of the basic facts are the really most important ones. The fact that this has been blamed on the photographers when it wasn't the photographers that did it. The photographers were uh, seen to be a real danger around the crash scene. And uh, very few people know this, but all of the photographers were rounded up by the French uh, police and military who were there, military police. And they, they even had... Um, rectal searches to make sure that they hadn't got film uh, actually uh, stashed inside themselves uh, so there was a very very thorough cleansing of the uh, of the um, uh, crime scene and making sure that the French police in Paris had absolute control of all of the information and all of the evidence and of course you know there's been there's been st- uh, all sorts of things have been done to try and uh, put together what actually happened between the crash itself and the arrival of uh, the police and uh, the media on the scene. Uh, and there, there's still all sorts of questions to answer about that. That's the sort of thing that should have been addressed by the inquest, but, but, but basically wasn't addressed in the inquest. The other thing, of course, to do with the inquest is that uh, the key person who the uh, the prosecution wanted to interview was the Duke of Edinburgh. I mean, they believed that the Duke, uh, who certainly does have a, 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 I mean, he's a field marshal in the British Army and he has a great deal of clout at MI6, uh, it, there, were, there were all sorts of questions that Michael Mansfield, Mohammed al Fayed's lawyer, wanted to ask him. But not only did the Duke of Edinburgh not appear, and of course he should have done if we believe in the rule of law in this country, every, anybody, including uh, the, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, should be a possible, possibly um, a criminal and should be investigated as a possible criminal if there's evidence against them. But not only was he not at the inquest, uh, the, the coroner decided, oh, uh, I don't think we're going to... Um, necessitate the Duke of Edinburgh coming here. But all the questions that had been formulated over many years by uh, Mohammed al fayed's lawyer, Michael Mansfield, uh, were ordered by the coroner to be kept from the public. So there was basically a gagging order on the press. The press, the day that the Duke of Edinburgh was supposed to have appeared, 
um, the press were told, not only can you not report the Duke of Edinburgh because he's not coming, you can't even report the questions that Michael Mansfield had for him. And you'd be surprised that you can't even now uh, go onto the internet or anywhere else and find out what the questions were that uh, it was an attempt to... I mean, I think what's going on here, essentially, is an, you know, very, a very simple but serious abuse of power. It's people in very high positions in, uh, in MI6, in the government, in possibly in the Home Office, in the Foreign Office, uh, and, and in the royal family who are abusing their position to cover up their own guilt for murder and assassination. Okay, well, we'll come back to the Duke of Edinburgh in a minute. But just one question I want to go back to was the uh, when you when you said that Diana had um, only been, I believe it was, um, not very far away from a hospital at the time of of the incident, about three point eight miles away. Um, isn't the healthcare system uh, fairly different in in France, where you know they'll attend to the victim uh, in the ambulance rather than rushing them to hospital? As the well, they'll do, they'll, they do the same in most countries. They'll do the same in Britain if uh, if the situation is serious enough. Uh, but the indication is that when she got into the ambulance, Diana was reasonably healthy. She was, uh, you know, she was certainly talking. Uh, and there are photographs in existence, although they have never been released, uh, at least according to, I think, the, um, I can't remember the name of one of the uh, photographers who was there, but he said that he's, he has a photograph of Diana sat up in the back talking to him. Um, and one does wonder whether uh, the ambulance that was supposed to be looking after her and caring for her was in fact the ambulance of death, that somebody in the ambulance would, was simply part of the assassination team. Uh, and that would certainly explain why the a ambulance took such a long time to get to the hospital. Uh, you know, unless we uh, literally interrogate the the uh, paramedics who were in that ambulance and the drivers, etc., and anybody else that was there, uh, very, very closely, yeah. it's going to be very difficult to, to tell whether the ambulance was there to uh, help Diana or, or to kill her off. Yeah, I mean, it was very strange why the tunnel was uh, so quickly opened when such a, a major scene like that wasn't preserved for a, for a while, especially with it being Princess Diana's death. So. Yeah, uh, it, it certainly was. I mean, although I can imagine if the uh, police believe they got the wreckage out of the way and all the photographs necessary, that they're, they're quite well used to dealing with accidents, closing uh, roads. I mean, this is a very uh, important road in Paris. And then uh, once they've got f photography and they believe they've collected all the evidence to go again. But of course, you know, the, the main evidence would be from all the witnesses that either saw the crash or were there very quickly afterwards or saw vehicles rushing in and out of the tunnel actually at the time. So I don't think um, closing the uh, the tunnel for maybe a day or several days would have helped. OK, well, let's discuss some of the possible reasons why uh, Diana could have been assassinated. But um, obviously, let's remember that all the evidence obtained by the inquiry points to the deaths being the result of a tragic accident. So um, so the powers that wanted her to remarry, did they want her to remarry an American? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I think that the the whole atmosphere in the royal family was really poisonous at the time. If you see uh, any bits of film um, around... Uh, the mid-1990s of anything with the Queen to do with Diana, you will see that the body language between Diana and Prince Charles, the body language between Diana and the Queen is absolutely horrific. She is basically being told by the royal family, look, uh, Charles will have other lovers, but you have to just carry on as his wife and ignore it. 
and she was not prepared to do that. So you could see that it was very, a very awkward and nasty situation when she had to appear with Charles in public uh, and with the royal family. And uh, there are several occasions I've seen on film where you could see that there's an exchange going on between the Queen and Diana, and Diana is really uh, uh, annoyed, angry, feeling put upon, and she's being spoken to as if she's a child by the Queen. So this sort of thing is going to uh, you know, not make for good relations with the royal family. Okay, we're going to take a break there, so please stay tuned, and I'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at themoreshow.co.uk.
Listening to the Moore Show, and here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. I'm currently joined here with Tony Gosling, where we've been discussing his research into the death of Princess Diana. So, Tony, just before the break, there, I was going to ask you, how likely was it that Diana was pregnant with uh, Dodie's child? I think uh, I think that's uh, very likely to have been true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does look like that, and I think they were also uh, announcing their their engagement. I certainly know Simon Regan, who was a reporter, a very famous reporter on The Sun, before it got bought by Rupert Murdoch, uh, wrote a book about this. And he had actually been um, given a painting of uh, Dodie and Diana, which was going to form the backdrop of uh, a press conference uh, when they got back to London, showing the two of them together and as a sort of uh, engagement present, this painting. The, the other thing is, of course, that they were, um, uh, they actually gone and chosen a diamond ring uh, as as a uh, engagement ring. Now, this all 
does seem like it was definitely an engagement. In fact, the, the chap that sold them the ring even had pressure put in, on him by the French authorities, by the French police, to say, oh, no, it wasn't an engagement ring, it was just an ordinary ring. But he was adamant that it was, and he, he actually even spoke, said that, you know, there has been pressure put on me to try and say that this wasn't an engagement ring. Clearly, uh, that's what their intention was when they came to see me. Yeah, but I mean, would such a relationship between the mother of the future king and a prominent uh, Egyptian Muslim be tolerated? Well, I think the royal family it lives in a really, uh, I mean, this sort of archetypal ivory tower. They don't really see themselves as anything to do with the ordinary population of the country, and they see themselves as better. The thing with Diana is she was actually a bridge between the royal family and ordinary people. And I think that was one of the key reasons why the, the, the royal family may have wanted her dead, because she knew a very de- great deal of detail about the, the way that the royal family works. And when she went on to television on the Martin Bashir interview, that they would have been horrified to see, gosh, here's Diana that used to sit amongst us going and talking to the public about how we behave. And this was the last thing they wanted to see, and they would have been very much afraid that, uh, particularly because she was so good at grabbing the media spotlight, that there would be newspaper articles, she'd be on the radio, she'd be on television documentaries, really uh, puncturing the bursting the bubble of the royal family's kind of aloofness. Now, there's lots of people that still respect the royal family, uh, and uh, many of those people would be would have been uh, dead against the royal family after Diana had spoken on television, radio, newspaper articles about how the royal family really operates behind the scenes. I mean, do you believe then that um, there was no... I mean, she had to be killed because maybe there's no legal way to prevent her from having any more children once divorce... But well, well she... this is another really important uh, potential motive, and that is that uh, she would have had Muslim children, uh, at least half Muslim children, and uh, it would be very, uh, I mean, the, the, especially in the current situation, it'd be very difficult to imagine uh, Islamic uh, heirs to the throne, or at least brothers uh, and sisters to the current heir to the throne, that is... Um, Prince William and Prince Harry, uh, and the idea that uh, a Muslim family would be very, very close to the royal family, I think, uh, you know, nowadays that would be almost seen as as impossible because we've got a really serious, you know, attack, I think, on the Muslim population by, uh, not just by the royal family, but by the British establishment, parts of it anyway, in general. And uh, the idea that uh, William and Harry could be uh, out off playing with their half-brothers and half-sisters who yeah. are Muslims is almost unthinkable. Yep, yeah, surely Diane must have known what she was putting herself up for. I think she did, yes, and, and she said several times that she believed her life was in danger. In fact, she wrote a note uh, actually to saying that my husband is going to have me killed in a car crash. Now, for many years, that was blanked out. Uh, my, it was blank, blank is going to have me killed. And in fact, it was an interesting revelation to see the the black material removed from her note. Uh, The other thing, of course, is there were many of her personal effects and letters that she'd sent to the Duke of Edinburgh and various other people, which have mysteriously disappeared or been shredded. Uh, And so much of the secret fears of Diana about being killed um, have been uh, successfully destroyed. You know, these these are all the sorts of things that you would expect to see in evidence at an inquest, but of course they can't appear if they've been destroyed and taken by, by the royals. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think I think that's um, 
that's there's a lot there's a lot that uh, are correct about Diana's predictions that she uh, might meet a sticky end. I think she was an extremely brave woman to carry on as she did and to literally to take on the might of the British establishment and all of the other organisations that surround the British throne, that is things like the Order of the Garter, there are all sorts of other things, the Privy Council. In fact, the royal family, although they make out those sort of figureheads, are actually extremely powerful, appointing Lord Lieutenants all around the country, and they're still uh, the direct line into the British Armed Forces, the military, the Army, Navy and Air Force. So, you know, they're still very powerful, and I think uh, MI6 is just the organisation that they do to do dirty tricks. Yes, because Dodie fired. He wasn't the only uh, Muslim that she dated. There was Dr. Khan before him, wasn't there? That's right. She seemed to um, uh, be really rather disillusioned with traditional, uh, I suppose you might call it Protestant um, British royal ethics and the sort of Church of England kind of way of doing things. And I think that's because Essentially, the uh, the Church of England and all, large parts of the establishment are totally occupied by what we might call the dark forces. That is, people who want to use power and the establishment to their own ends for their own little elite club. And this was it was very dangerous because Diana was quite happy to talk about this elitism and and to expose it. And of course, uh, anyone that's been so close and is so well loved by the British people. Um, would have been taken seriously and and she was a very serious threat to the status quo of the rich and powerful uh, and and the darker side of the rich and powerful in Britain. Yeah, I mean, for Charles, even if he had a civil divorce, um, there was still no way for Charles to remarry um, unless she was dead, I suppose. Well, this is this is another side of all of this is the relationship between um Charles and Camilla were always overshadowed the marriage i mean effectively although although Diana was a virgin uh, the poor girl was uh, sucked into a fake marriage uh, the idea was that she was there to produce children uh, and that Charles would uh, be expected or was expecting to be able to have uh, relationships elsewhere. Um, now, this wasn't something that Diana was going to accept, and it was very clear in the Martin Bashir interview. I mean, her own pe- parents had been divorced, and she was absolutely adamant that when she got married, it was going to be for life. And it was, and, but, but I mean, I think Charles really uh, decided that uh, and he had decided from a long time ago that the marriage was, was going to be there for the, for the public and for show and that behind the scenes he was going to be able to play around and it must have been very difficult for Diana knowing that uh, actually his lover Camilla knew him much better than she did because of course Camilla had known, uh, had known Prince Charles for a long time before Diana uh, and that uh, Prince Charles was continuing his dalliances with Camilla, both before and after the marriage, for her to afterwards find out that she'd been conned as a virgin into a, into a fake marriage, uh, well, of course, she, she was very annoyed about that. Um, but she did do everything she could to keep the marriage together for the sake of the children, William and Harry. Talking about Prince Charles there, Tony, I mean, do you think there's any possibility that, you know, Charles could have been involved in Diana's death at all? Well, it's very difficult to know. I mean, the way that the Queen reacted to it all was uh, to Diana's death was particularly interesting in that she seemed to just want to ignore it. I mean, there, there was a whole outcry from the country, from the news media, from the public who had come to uh, lay flowers at Buckingham Palace. 
Uh, and it was very clear that the Queen just wanted to turn her back on the whole situation and ignore it. Now, in that sort of situation, of course, uh, it really is Charles's job to to take over and to ensure that there is some kind of public send-off. Um, and that really is a way of him kind of uh, washing his hands of the whole affair. It's very difficult to know for sure exactly what his role is, but I'm quite certain that uh, it wouldn't have been possible to have Diana assassinated without him his say-so. I mean, even if it was just a sort of nod and a wink, uh, I'm sure he would have known about it, uh, which is, you know, it's pretty scary, really, if you think that uh, someone can actually have their own, uh, you know, own wife murdered for their own convenience. I think one of the one of the key bad people in all of this is the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, I would have imagined that the final decision would have been his, and uh, the other thing is, of course, is he would have been guaranteeing Charles, uh, who may have had doubts about it all, that um, that the cover up would be successful. Don't worry about anything. Well, what's happened, of course, is it hasn't. Uh, I mean, m- millions of people in Britain still believe that uh, Diana was assassinated. And there's all sorts of disagreements about why. But, uh, of course, this has meant it's very difficult for Prince Charles to now become king uh, because of the suspicions about about his uh, uh, his wife's, you know, Diana's death. Um, and this has put, put him in a very, very difficult position. Uh, he may have agreed to the assassination, but he may now be bitterly regretting it, thinking, well, you know, the people don't respect me or like me anymore because of what my dad persuaded me to do. I actually feel quite sorry for Prince Charles. I don't think he can become king now. I mean, it would be interesting to see if he tries. Uh, but he may go for a wider world role, maybe, you know, in Europe or somewhere like that, and and allow the succession, once uh, Queen Elizabeth dies, to go straight to his son and Diana's son, uh, Prince William. Well, just discussing the Duke of Edinburgh there, wasn't we led to believe that uh, Diana was more aligned with the Duke of Edinburgh than we thought? I don't think so, no. I think uh, he, he had told Diana, basically, just shut up. Uh, if Prince Charles wants to sleep around a bit, then uh, you just have to accept it. And there was nowhere else that the Duke of Edinburgh was prepared to go. I think this is something which has been going on in the higher echelons of the establishment for, for hundreds of years, is that we have kind of token relationships. We have uh, uh, token marriages and, and dalliances behind the scenes. And the idea is that the man has to be the stiff upper lip and the woman has to smile sweetly and pretend that everything's rosy. Whereas actually behind the scenes, there's all sorts of dalliances going on and, um, you know, uh, multiple relationships, uh, prostitutes possibly even. But, you know, I think that is actually the norm in certain parts of the sort of darker parts of the establishment. And uh, they do think that they're able to pull the wool over the eyes of the public by coming out in public and appearing like everything's normal and smiling sweetly. Sure, okay. But... um Maybe that's maybe that's done that way, so that you know, if there was any uh, risks of um, divorce, then again, it's it's so very costly, isn't it? And there's so much land involved with these people. Um, we're not talking about the average divorce, are we? Well, no, and and of course, the whole onus uh, of the divorce between Charles and Diana was left to Diana. Um, for many years, they were separated, but uh, it was like the biggest question in the country is. Uh, when are they going to get divorced um, and who is going to file for divorce was just left and left and left, which is a dreadful way to treat Diana. I mean, after she's been cheated on uh, multiple times, uh, they then expect her to take the initiative in, in, in getting the divorce rolling. Uh, 
uh, ultimately, thankfully, Charles decided, yes, he would do that. Uh, he would get the divorce moving. And it's the last thing, because it was the last thing she wanted. And, of course, if it's if it's Charles that's gone astray with, with Camilla, it's only, uh, you know, the, the, ver- the most least decent, the most decent thing to do is for, for him to file for divorce. But he was waiting for her to do it because he wanted to really, I suppose, carry on the charade of the marriage. I mean, surely, if Princess Diana was assassinated, then William or Harry would have some knowledge of this. And wouldn't they talk about it? I mean, how would they feel about this? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask them that, but uh, I would imagine uh, both William and Harry uh, are familiar with all sorts of conspiracy theories to do with their mother's death and probably take it more seriously than many uh, uh, ordinary English people do. Um, So... It's very difficult without asking them to know what their real thoughts are. I would say both of them have suspicions uh, about their mother's death and um, it must be really difficult for them to uh, even discuss it with each other because uh, it looks like that the source of that may be within their own family. And I think it's an absolutely diabolical thing uh, to have happened. And the idea, of course, being that if you do something which is really hideously evil and diabolical, uh, with your fingers crossed behind your back, hopefully no one will believe that you've you've done it, especially if you're a great pillar of the establishment. And I think this is what, simply what's happened here, is that uh, powerful, rich, powerful people have abused their position to get away with murder. I mean, it makes you think, doesn't it, uh, Tony? Um, why did... Um Prince Charles marry Diana. Why didn't he just wait around for uh, Camilla to get divorced? Well, the reason that Charles didn't marry Camilla was because he was already married to somebody else. Uh, she subsequently got divorced, and then, um, and after Diana's death, Charles was free to remarry. But uh, if you actually look into the detail of the law, uh, because Charles had cheated on Diana, and Diana hadn't cheated on Charles. In law, no members of the royal family are actually allowed to remarry if it's them that's caused the uh, divorce, them that's the source of the divorce. So uh, Charles has actually broken the law by marrying Camilla, so I wouldn't have been surprised if they just decided they wanted to live together. Uh, Because the law does actually say, and this is uh, an act of parliament from the, uh, I think it's from between 1910 and 1920, uh, which makes it very clear that any members of the royal family have to follow uh, the church's line on what marriage and divorce, you know, what you're allowed to do in marriage and divorce. And that meant that as he had che- te- cheated on Diana, he would not then uh, be allowed to re- remarry. It would be only if Diana had cheated on him and then died, then he w- would have been allowed to be married. But of course, that wasn't the case. Okay. Now, if people want to find out more about Diana, is there any good uh, YouTube uh, sites out there? Well, there's one called uh, Princess Diana is Love. That is youtube.com slash user slash Princess Diana is Love. And uh, I would really recommend this channel. It's got all of the main uh, documentaries. And one of the best was made by, I think it's uh, NBC Television in the United States, which used all these tapes uh, that uh, uh, were recorded for by Diana uh, for Andrew Morton, for him to write his book, Diana, Her True Story, with. And these tapes are still in existence and uh, were transcribed in the United States into this really amazing, I think it's about a three-hour-long documentary called Princess Diana, The Secret Tapes. And I think of all of the documentaries about Diana, this is one of the most fascinating because it gives her us a real 
insight into her, in her own words, uh, the, what she was going through uh, at Kensington Palace, uh, basically living on her own, uh, as separated from, uh, from Prince Charles. And, um, I mean, it paints a picture of someone who is very positive and who has decided that, well, if my husband's a bad one, I'm just going to get on with life and uh, it's him that's forced the divorce. It's yeah. him that's put, put the uh, children into this position. So she felt she had a clear conscience and that she could go out and uh, start her life all over again. And, and, and But it does go into some quite gory detail as to... Uh, how she actually overcame her bulimia, which is really fascinating. For example, uh, she does she describes how she confronted Camilla uh, at a party over um, uh, Camilla sleeping with her husband, and um, and it shows that it was at that point, only when she went up to Camilla at this party and said said to her, "Look, I know what's going on. Don't treat me as as if I'm stupid." But it was after that point that she stopped the bulimia she felt much more confident and then she started getting on with her life without Charles. Tony we're almost at the end of the show right now so um, what's your website addresses where um, people can get in contact with you? Well I, I also um, I also have a, a, a web page which is at elementary.org.uk I mean the elementary is just for the sort of Sherlock Holmes uh, expression and there you can see uh, a whole set of uh, articles and bits of information about the death of Princess Diana and some of the more sort of, the sort of suspicious uh, circumstances to do with it. I mean, I've, I've had a look at the uh, various um, suspicious uh, deaths, possible assassinations. Um, another one is the death of Robin Cook. Another one is the death of Dr. David Kelly. Um, and there are, there are several others, but I mean, I use this as a sort of message board where people can post up anything they see which they think is uh, suspicious and they want to share with others. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. That's all right. Anytime. If you'd like to find out more on Tony Gosling, go to www.bilderberg.org or visit my site, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Tony under past guests. So until next time, be safe.